And this is, <clears throat> this is from John 17, verses 6 to 19. And if you have the Pew Bible, it's 1085. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture could be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word And the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. If they are not of the world, even as I am not of it, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Hello everyone. Right, just move that out of the way. Um, So, good evening. I'd like to do three things. We're going to use this passage not so much as a how to be a disciple. Actually, I'm not even sure I'm qualified for that um, in a real sense. Um, But more to see what Jesus thinks disciples are. Because actually that's what really matters. I'm going to use an analogy uh, to kick us off, to give us a bit of a backstory. And in terms of application, what I'm hoping is that we will be able to see that this prayer of Jesus can really impact the way we pray for one another. So let me pray first now. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege of being able to speak to your word. And I just ask, Father, that if there's anything that comes out of my mouth that is unhelpful, that you would 
deafness to it, please. And that at the end of this all, we would know, Lord Jesus, that we are called to be your disciples. And I pray that in your name. Amen. So, Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. It was a mission brought out of love, God's love for us. And there was only one person he could entrust this mission to. And that was his only son, Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But Jesus couldn't, indeed he wouldn't, do this on his own. That was never the deal. So bear with me whilst I play around with a bit of an analogy. Whatever kind of work you do, the answer to growth and expansion is to put together a good succession plan. I'm sure some of you here have been involved in different kinds of succession plans. You get the right people being prepared to lead and take the business forward. So imagine, you've been tasked with completely reshaping the focus, the ethos, even the foundational principles of your company into something that will literally stop people in their tracks and gaze in wonder at what you're doing. You haven't got long, but the CEO, who always kind of stays in the background, has given you absolute authority to do what's needed. And you and he are completely at one about the purpose and the end game of the restructure. So, who do you get on board to support you and eventually move the whole project forward? This has got to be a grassroots initiative. Sadly, no good bringing in the really senior managers. Not yet, anyway, with few exceptions. They don't seem to have change capacity in them. So off to the shop floor, trainee graduates, delivery guys, the real rookies, and you pick what appears to be a very motley crew of men. Some skilled, some less so, but this is interesting each one of them chosen because the CEO has given them to you. He made the call on this one. You didn't. So three years on and you have pretty much the dream team. A few glitches here and there, but you're now completely confident that now is the right time for you to move on. You and the CEO in constant communication. The changes in your team are extraordinary. They've grown in stature, in leadership, in unity. Many have opposed and criticized both you and they, but you have been strengthened in that. Even some of those senior managers stuck in their old ways are seeing the light, seeing there could be new way to live and work, new ways to serve the local community, But what the team didn't realize until really quite recently is that the past three years have been all about you leaving and they staying on to carry on the work that you have begun with them. So as we come to our reading, of course, Jesus' earthly mission is beginning to draw to an end. 
He and the disciples have had a really special meal together. They've shared the Passover. And Jesus has been trying to reassure them. And if your Bible, like mine, uh, your online Bible is read, where Jesus' words are, you'll see that chapters 14 to 17 are pretty much solid read. Jesus had quite a lot to say. He's tried to reassure his team, but they're getting a little edgy. They realize things are about to change. They know, but they don't quite understand that Jesus is going to go away and somehow they're going to have to carry on um, in some way on their own. It's really not at all clear. But what is clear to anybody looking on is that the disciples really love Jesus. They really, really love this man. But perhaps equally, they know that he loves them. I mean, he really loves them. In fact, they've begun to realize, and just a few months previously, Peter had dared to declare, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That was in Matthew 16. He is their Lord, their master, their friend. Only a few hours ago, Jesus had said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything, everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. I mean, isn't that extraordinary? And so now, here we are in the Garden of Gethsemane, the setting for tonight's reading. This is actually, I imagine, quite hard for Jesus. He knows what will happen in the next few days. It's hard for his disciples. They, in many ways, haven't a clue what's going on. Oh, and of course, there's only 11 of them now. Because Judas was never going to make it. He's already busy plotting Jesus' downfall. And Ulfa, perhaps a bit of extra cash. But actually, in truth, it was part of a bigger plan, wasn't it? The bigger picture. To fulfill the scriptures. And now, Jesus is praying. <clears throat> the disciples have heard Jesus pray before. In fact, he taught them how to pray. But this is different. And as we read this prayer, I don't know about you, but it is striking to me what an intimate prayer this is. Jesus speaking to his father, and yet very intentionally in the hearing of his disciples. This was not a time when Jesus went off on his own to pray. Stay with me, he says. Listen, listen to me as I pray for you to my Father. It's a prayer of such love for those closest to him, of such concern for them, and yet also such confidence in who they are, whose they are, and the mission that he has given them. So what does Jesus pray? 
First, Jesus presents his disciples to the Father. He affirms their faith and their deep knowledge of God. He confirms their identity before him. They belong to God. He honors their obedience and their trust in God's word. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. I gave them the words you gave me, and they've accepted them. He recalls before the Father that they now know that Jesus came from the Father, and they believe that the Father sent him. I mean, what an encouragement for the disciples. Tired, getting a little edgy about what was going to happen, And what does Jesus do in front of his father? He reminds them of who they are, what they've achieved, and he strengthens them in the truth of all he's taught them and all they have believed. He reminds them of who they are. They are disciples of Jesus. Last weekend, um, uh, there's actually a whole family. We went to Wiltshire because it was a significant birthday for my cousin. And I was invited to say a few words for her, as was her son. And when we'd finished speaking, she kind of slightly in jest, but not entirely, said, you know, I don't really recognize the woman you've been talking about. And it was an opportunity to really just go and sit and chat with her and just encourage her and say, actually, yes, this is who you are. But it led to a question for me because I was thinking about tonight. When we read how Jesus describes the disciples, how he presents them to the Father, Do we recognize ourselves as disciples of Jesus? Do we recognize ourselves in those first few verses of that passage? Secondly, Jesus sets out in the clearest possible terms his relationship with God the Father. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. But in so doing, he brings the disciples into that deep abiding relationship with both father and son. The unity of father and son is absolute. And because they belong to Jesus, they belong to the father. Because we belong to Jesus, we belong to the father. Now, as we read this, of course, it's quite helpful to remember that we know the whole story. We know about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We we, we know that. The disciples didn't, you know, as they listen to Jesus in the darkness of that garden of Gethsemane, they did not know the full story. And then Jesus goes on to say something quite extraordinary. And glory has come to me through them. Whoa. 
How can glory come to Jesus through the disciples? What a statement, what a challenge. Do we realize, do we really realize that we can indeed are called to bring glory to Jesus by what we do, by who we are? All that the disciples have done, they have done in the name of Jesus. As they went around preaching and teaching, serving, cooking, working, caring for one another, they did it in the name of Jesus. And in so doing, they did it for one purpose and one purpose only. They did it to give glory to Jesus and through him to the Father. I actually have found probably that little that little verse, the most challenging, um, as I was preparing this, if I'm honest, <clears throat> because it begs a question, doesn't it? If we don't do life as Christians to the glory of God, then whose glory are we doing it for? I mean, I, I ask that of myself. I find myself seriously lacking in the grace to always point to Jesus. And I know how easy it is, almost without thinking, how easy it is to do life for my glory. <laughs> I mean, it's a fact, and not for the glory of God. Perhaps you do too. What a challenge, eh? And it was just a prayer. Our mission as disciples is to give God glory through Jesus. How in real everyday life are we going to do that? Well, let's read on because I think there are some pointers to that to help us in how Jesus continues to pray. So having brought them before the Father, having established that their calling is to bring him and the Father glory through their ongoing ministry, Jesus asks two things of the Father. He petitions that they will be protected by the power of your name and that they will be sanctified in the truth. Quite weighty, weighty things those, aren't they? So, first of all, he says, Holy Father, protect them. Nowhere else does Jesus use the term Holy Father. And yet at this time of such love for his dearest earthly friends, he pours out his heart to his Father on their behalf and Jesus submits to the absolute otherness of God the Father. God's holiness is like none other. And he asks his Father to protect those he loves with all the power and all the authority that is attributed to his holy name. Nothing but the best to keep them safe and secure and able to continue the task that he's prepared for them. The task that we today 
are being called to continue. They're like me, says Jesus. They're not of the world. They too are set apart. And those in the world that are against me will probably go after them too. And perhaps in quite subtle ways. Perhaps excluding Jesus' disciples from the in crowd. Perhaps not inviting you to dinner with some of the other people that you know are being invited. It may even be a promotion is denied. Jesus doesn't ask that they be protected from financial crashes or robbery or sickness, though he can do that. He asks they be protected from the evil one and that they may be one, united. Now, most commentators would agree that the greatest danger for us in our everyday lives is that we get crushed under the weight of those who stand against us, that we allow temptations to overcome us. John 10.10 tells us, the thief comes to steal and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's our inheritance. But the great danger is that temptations overcome us, that our unity is compromised. Next week, we're going to be looking at the unity of believers going forward. But I think it's quite important that we see that they may be one refers less to having a nice kind of good team spirit together and much more about having a common and unified understanding of the truth. These were those very first disciples responsible for continuing the work They were a key part of Jesus' succession plan. They were the plan. They needed to be on the same page, all of them on task with one mind and one understanding of the significance of Jesus, the Son of God, coming on earth. And Jesus asks that they be protected with the full weight of all the authority that God's name represents. You know, sometimes we do have as disciples to say, in God's name, I will stand on the truth. Not in the name of my friends or my vicar or that good commentary, but in God's name. So, with all this in mind, Jesus makes a second request. Sanctify them. In your truth, your word is truth. Now, let's face it, sanctify is not an everyday sort of word, is it? Um, And so I think the best understanding is that we be kept holy and set apart for the task that we've been given. We're naturally broken, flawed, and yet... As disciples of Jesus, we've been made new, cleansed, made holy through the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. Our greatest protection is to cling to the truth of the gospel message. And the source of that truth is God's word, both the written word and Jesus himself, the living word. We have God's name and the truth of his word to protect us. We are called to be set apart, yes, 
perhaps a little different. But actually, we're called to be right in there, not on the edges. Remember, the reason that God sent his son was out of love for the world. The very places and people that often oppose God and his word are the very places and people that are the object of God's love. It's a bit of a conundrum, really, isn't it? So we need to be in there. It's no good be sitting in a holy huddle on the edge. I was speaking to someone recently who was clearing a bit of land for replanting, I won't go into how and why, that was full of thistles. And I kind of looked at this and I thought, crumbs, couldn't you have found a better bit of land? Um, And you know what he said to me? He said, the best land has the worst thistles in it. Don't be intimidated by the thistles. Just keep focusing on the crop and look to what God has called you to. Don't be intimidated by the thistles. And so that's our task too. Um, I sometimes ask myself, would anyone know I'm a Christian? Perhaps you ask yourself that too. But don't be discouraged Because you too, like the disciples, have got Jesus on your case, interceding for you, the great mediator, the great high priest. You can read all about it in Hebrews 4. So, final bit. How can Jesus' prayer for his disciples inform in some way... or impact the way we pray for one another. I want to offer really quite a simple suggestion. Actually, I'm beginning to see this in new ways, and I think it's quite exciting. So think for a moment. When was the last time you prayed for somebody? What did you pray for? Something to do with their work, or health, or, I don't know, friend? healing? I hope so. I mean, those are really important things to pray for. But did you also pray that your brother and sister would stay faithful to God's word? Did you also pray that they would declare God's glory in all that they did? Did you also pray that they might be protected from confusion and despair that would lead them to doubt God's love for them and the truth of his word? This is what Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus didn't tell the father what a good fisherman Peter was. He might have done, but, you know, that wasn't the focus. How good a doctor Luke is. As we encourage one another and pray for one another, let's of course give thanks for our skills, but let's not forget 
to honour one another, for holding firm in faith through that really difficult time. I know you had a good time and I praise God that you just hung on in there, that you were faithful to God's word in spite of all that was going on, that you clung to him. That's, that's, that's what we pray for one another, we bless each other with. I remember the first time someone prayed for me that I would be kept holy. Well, I have to be perfectly honest, I was almost offended. Well, they clearly don't think I'm much of a Christian. I have moved on from that, just. (laughs) But at the time, the root of my reaction was very kind of me, me, me. You see... Our holiness is measured by what God in his perfect holiness has done for us in Jesus. It is not measured on our failure to live up to impossible standards that we often set ourselves And as I was preparing this, I really sensed that some of us, I think, may be quite bowed down by our own feeling of not being holy enough. We need to lift our eyes away from our own lack towards God's abundant grace. Abundant, abundant grace. We will never be holy enough, given But as we look to Jesus and his abundant grace, we will see the perfect holiness and we will begin to walk in it. If that's you this evening, may I encourage you to ask someone to pray for you? So St. John's is a growing church. We're seeing more of us here in the evening as well as the morning. Let's be praying that we're faithful to God's word, that we will find new ways of serving together, of being hospitable, of welcoming, of offering friendship, and all in the name of Jesus. And let's ask God to give us hearts that more readily say that all we do, we do for the glory of God. Let me just pray a minute. Father, you had your son present to you these first disciples, and yet it could have been us. Um, And I pray, Father God, that you would draw each one of us to you, that you would show us your love, that you would cause our eyes to look upwards to your abundant grace that you would remind us that Jesus took our sins and our failings to the cross and that you would empower us to really pray for one another in ways that imitate the way your son prayed for those first disciples and I pray that in Jesus name Amen